Hello again, I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud, so good to have you with me this evening. Tonight's author is G.K. Chesterton, English writer, poet, philosopher, dramatist, journalist, orator, lay theologian, and biographer. Many of you may be familiar with his beloved stories of the priest detective Father Brown. Chesterton has often been called the Prince of Paradox. Consider the following quotations. Fairy tales do not tell children that dragons exist. Children already know that dragons exist. Fairy tales tell children that dragons can be killed. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. The act of defending any of the cardinal virtues has today all the exhilaration of a vice. And... An inconvenience is only an adventure wrongly considered. An adventure is an inconvenience rightly considered. Another paradox of Chesterton is that he will start telling a seemingly trivial story, and suddenly we discover that he is addressing serious moral, social, or theological questions. So it is with tonight's selections from his book Tremendous Trifles. These pieces originally appeared in the Daily News— They go out with thanks to Barbara, who first introduced me to this book and gave me her copy. Tremendous Trifles by G. K. Chesterton Once upon a time there were two little boys who lived chiefly in the front garden, because their villa was a model one. The front garden was about the same size as the dinner table. It consisted of four strips of gravel, a square of turf with some mysterious pieces of cork standing up in the middle, and one flower-bed with a row of red daisies. One morning, while they were at play in these romantic grounds, a passing individual, probably the milkman, leaned over the railing and engaged them in philosophical conversation. The boys, whom we shall call Paul and Peter, were at least sharply interested in his remarks— for the milkman, who was, I need hardly say, a fairy, did his duty in that state of life by offering them in a regulation manner anything that they chose to ask for. And Paul closed with the offer with a businesslike abruptness, explaining that he had long wished to be a giant, that he might stride across continents and oceans and visit Niagara or the Himalayas in an after-dinner stroll. The milkman produced a wand from his breast-pocket, waved it in a hurried and perfunctory manner, and, in an instant, the model villa, with its front garden, was like a tiny doll's house at Paul's colossal feet. He went striding away with his head above the clouds to visit Niagara and the Himalayas. But when he came to the Himalayas, he found they were quite small and silly-looking, like the little cork rockery in the garden and when he found Niagara, it was no bigger than the tap turned on in the bathroom. He wandered around the world for several minutes, trying to find something really large, and finding everything small, till, in sheer boredom, he lay down on four or five prairies and fell asleep. Unfortunately, his head was just outside the hut of an intellectual backwoodsman who came out of it at that moment with an axe in one hand and a book of neo-Catholic philosophy in the other. The man looked at the book, and then at the giant, and then at the book again, 
and in the book it said it can be maintained that the evil of pride consists in being out of proportion to the universe. So the backwoodsman put down his book, took his axe, and, working eight hours a day for about a week, cut the giant's head off, and there was an end of him. Such is the severe yet salutary history of Paul. But Peter, oddly enough, made exactly the opposite request. He said he had long wished to be a pygmy about half an inch high, and, of course, he immediately became one. When the transformation was over, he found himself in the midst of an immense plain covered with a tall green jungle above which, at intervals, rose strange trees, each with a head like the sun in symbolic pictures, with gigantic rays of silver and a huge heart of gold. Toward the middle of the prairie stood up a mountain of such romantic and impossible shape, yet of such stony height and dominance, that it looked like some incident of the end of the world, and far away, on the faint horizon, he could see the line of another forest, taller and yet more mystical, of a terrible crimson color, like a forest on fire forever. He set out on his adventures across that colored plain, and he has not come to the end of it yet. Such is the story of Peter and Paul, which contains all the highest qualities of a modern fairy tale, including that of being wholly unfit for children. And indeed the motive with which I have introduced it is not childish, but rather full of subtlety and reaction. It is in fact the almost desperate motive of excusing or palliating the pages that follow. Peter and Paul are the two primary influences upon European literature today, and I may be permitted to put my own preference in its most favorable shape, even if I can only do it by what little girls call telling a story. I need scarcely say that I am the pygmy. The only excuse for the scraps that follow is that they show what can be achieved with a commonplace existence and the sacred spectacle of exaggeration. The other great literary theory, that which is roughly represented in England by Mr. Rudyard Kipling, is that we moderns are to regain the primal zest by sprawling all over the world, growing used to travel and geographical varieties, being at home everywhere, that is, being at home nowhere. Let it be granted that a man in a frock coat is a heart-rending sight, and the two alternative methods still remain. Mr. Kipling's school advises us to go to Central Africa in order to find a man without a frock coat. The school to which I belong suggests that we should stare steadily at the man until we see the man inside the frock coat. If we stare at him long enough, he may even be moved to take off his coat to us, and that is a far greater compliment than his taking off his hat. In other words, we may, by fixing our attention almost fiercely on the facts actually before us, force them to turn into adventures, force them to give up their meaning and fulfill their mysterious purpose. The purpose of the Kipling literature is to show how many extraordinary things a man may see if he is active and strides from continent to continent like the giant in my tale. 
but the object of my school is to show how many extraordinary things even a lazy and ordinary man may see if he can spur himself to the single activity of seeing. For this purpose, I have taken the laziest person of my acquaintance, that is, myself, and made an idle diary of such odd things as I have fallen over by accident, in walking in a very limited area at a very indolent pace. If anyone says that these are very small affairs talked about in very big language, I can only gracefully compliment him upon seeing the joke. If anyone says that I am making mountains out of molehills, I confess with pride that it is so. I can imagine no more successful and productive form of manufacture than that of making mountains out of molehills. But I would add this not unimportant fact, that molehills are mountains. One has only to become a pygmy like Peter to discover that. I have my doubts about all this real value in mountaineering, in getting to the top of everywhere and overlooking everything. Satan was the most celebrated of alpine guides when he took Jesus to the top of an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth. But the joy of Satan in standing on a peak is not a joy in largeness, but a joy in beholding smallness, in the fact that all men look like insects at his feet. It is from the valley that things look large. It is from the level that things look high. I am a child of the level and have no need of that celebrated alpine guide. I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help, but I will not lift up my carcass to the hills unless it is absolutely necessary. Everything is in an attitude of mind, and at this moment I am in a comfortable attitude. I will sit down and let the marvels and the adventures settle on me like flies. There are plenty of them, I assure you. The world will never starve for want of wonders, but only for want of wonder. A Piece of Chalk I remember one splendid morning, all blue and silver, in the summer holidays when I reluctantly tore myself away from the task of doing nothing in particular, and put on a hat of some sort, and picked up a walking stick, and put six very bright-colored chalks in my pocket. I then went into the kitchen, which, along with the rest of the house, belonged to a very square and sensible old woman in a Sussex village, and asked the owner and occupant of the kitchen if she had any brown paper. She had a great deal, in fact she had too much, and she mistook the purpose and the rationale of the existence of brown paper. She seemed to have the idea that if a person wanted brown paper, he must be wanting to tie up parcels, which was the last thing I wanted to do. Indeed, it is a thing which I have found to be far beyond my mental capacity. Hence she dwelt very much on the varying qualities of toughness and endurance in the material. I explained to her that I only wanted to draw pictures on it, and that I did not want them to endure in the least, and that from my point of view, therefore, it was a question not of tough consistency, but of responsive surface, a thing comparatively irrelevant in a parcel. When she understood that I wanted to draw, she offered to overwhelm me with notepaper, apparently supposing that I did my notes and correspondence on old brown paper wrappers from motives of economy. I then tried to explain the rather delicate logical shade that I not only liked brown paper, 
but liked the quality of brownness in paper just as I liked the quality of brownness in October woods, or in beer, or in the peat streams of the north. Brown paper represents the primal twilight of the first toil of creation, and with a bright-colored chalk or two you can pick out points of fire in it, sparks of gold and blood-red and sea-green, like the first fierce stars that sprang out of divine darkness. All this I said in an offhand way to the old woman, and I put the brown paper in my pocket along with the chalks and possibly other things. I suppose every one must have reflected how primeval and how poetical are the things that one carries in one's pocket. The pocket-knife, for instance, the type of all human tools, the infant of the sword. Once I planned to write a book of poems entirely about the things in my pockets, but I found it would be too big, and the age of the great epics is past. With my stick and my knife, my chalks and my brown paper, I went out on to the great downs. I crawled across those colossal contours that express the best quality of England, because they are at the same time soft and strong. The smoothness of them has the same meaning as the smoothness of great cart-horses, or the smoothness of the beech-trees. It declares, in the teeth of our timid and cruel theories, that the mighty are merciful. As my eyes swept the landscape, the landscape was as kindly as any of its cottages. But for power, it was like an earthquake. The villages in the immense valleys were safe, one could see, for centuries. Yet the lifting of the whole land was like the lifting of one enormous wave to wash them all away. I crossed one swell of living turf after another, looking for a place to sit down and draw. Do not, for heaven's sakes, imagine I was going to sketch from nature. I was going to draw devils and seraphim, and blind old gods that men worshipped before the dawn of right, and saints in robes of angry crimson, and seas of strange green, and all the sacred or monstrous symbols that look so well in bright colors on brown paper. They are much better worth drawing than nature. Also, they are much easier to draw. When a cow came slouching by in the field next to me, a mere artist might have drawn it, but I always get wrong in the hind legs of quadrupeds, so I drew the soul of the cow, which I saw there plainly walking before me in the sunlight, and the soul was all purple and silver and had seven horns and the mystery that belongs to all the beasts. But though I could not with a crayon get the best out of the landscape, it does not follow that the landscape was not getting the best out of me. And this, I think, is the mistake that people make about the old poets who lived before Wordsworth and were supposed not to care very much about nature because they did not describe it much. They preferred writing about great men to writing about great hills, but they sat on the great hills to write it. They gave out much less about nature because they drank it in, perhaps, much more. They painted the white robes of their holy virgins with the blinding snow at which they had stared all day. They blazoned the shields of their paladins with the purple and gold of many heraldic sunsets, the greenness of a thousand green leaves clustered into the live green figure of Robin Hood. The blueness of a score of forgotten skies became the blue robes of the virgin. The inspiration went in like sunbeams and came out like Apollo. 
but as I sat scrawling these silly figures on the brown paper, it began to dawn on me, to my great disgust, that I had left one chalk, and that a most exquisite and essential chalk behind. I searched all my pockets, but I could not find any white chalk. Now, those who are acquainted with all the philosophy, nay religion, which is typified in the art of drawing on brown paper, know that white is positive and essential. I cannot avoid remarking here upon a moral significance. One of the wise and awful truths that this brown paper art reveals is this, that white is a color. It is not a mere absence of color. It is a shining and affirmative thing, as fierce as red, as definite as black. When, so to speak, your pencil grows red-hot, it draws roses. When it grows white-hot, it draws stars. And one of the two or three defiant verities of the best religious morality, of real Christianity, for example, is exactly this same thing. The chief assertion of religious morality is that white is a color. Virtue is not the absence of vices or the avoidance of moral dangers. Virtue is a vivid and separate thing, like pain or a particular smell. Mercy does not mean not being cruel or sparing people revenge or punishment. It means a plain and positive thing like the sun, which one has either seen or not seen. Chastity does not mean abstention from sexual wrong. It means something flaming, like Joan of Arc. In a word, God paints in many colors, but he never paints so gorgeously, I had almost said so gaudily, as when he paints in white. In a sense, our age has realized this fact and expressed it in our sullen costume. For if it were really true that white was a blank and colorless thing, negative and non-committal, then white would be used instead of black and gray for the funeral dress of this pessimistic period. We should see city gentlemen in frock coats of spotless silver linen, with top hats as white as wonderful arum lilies, which is not the case. Meanwhile, I could not find my chalk. I sat on the hill in a sort of despair. There was no town nearer than Chichester, at which it was even remotely probable that there would be such a thing as an artist's colorman. And yet, without white, my absurd little pictures would be as pointless as the world would be if there were no good people in it. I stared stupidly round, racking my brain for expedience. Then I suddenly stood up and roared with laughter, again and again, so that the cows stared at me and called a committee. Imagine a man in the Sahara regretting that he had no sand for his hourglass. Imagine a gentleman in mid-ocean wishing that he had brought some salt water with him for his chemical experiments. I was sitting on an immense warehouse of white chalk. The landscape was made entirely out of white chalk. White chalk was piled more miles until it met the sky. I stooped and broke a piece off the rock I sat on. It did not mark so well as the shop chalks do, but it gave the effect. And I stood there in a trance of pleasure, realizing that this southern England is not only a grand peninsula and a tradition and a civilization, it is something even more admirable. It is a piece of chalk.
Some Policemen and a Moral The other day I was nearly arrested by two excited policemen in a wood in Yorkshire. I was on a holiday and was engaged in that rich and intricate mass of pleasures, duties, and discoveries which, for the keeping off of the profane, we disguised by the exoteric name of nothing. At the moment in question I was throwing a big Swedish knife at a tree, practicing, alas, without success, that useful trick of knife-throwing by which men murder each other in Stevenson's romances. Suddenly the forest was full of two policemen. There was something about their appearance in and relation to the greenwood that reminded me, I know not how, of some happy Elizabethan comedy. They asked what the knife was, who I was, and why I was throwing it, what my address was, trade, religion, opinions on the Japanese war, name of favorite cat, and so on. They also said I was damaging the tree, which was, I am sorry to say, not true because I could not hit it. The peculiar philosophical importance, however, of the incident was this. After some half-hour's animated conversation, the exhibition of an envelope, an unfinished poem which was read with great care and, I trust, with some profit, and one or two other subtle detective strokes, the elder of the two knights became convinced that I really was what I professed to be, that I was a journalist, that I was on the daily news, this was the real stroke, they were shaken by a terror common to all tyrants, that I lived in a particular place as stated, and that I was stopping with particular people in Yorkshire who happened to be wealthy and well-known in the neighborhood. In fact, the leading constable became so genial and complimentary at last that he ended up by representing himself as a reader of my work. And when that was said, everything was settled. They acquitted me and let me pass. But, I said, what of this mangled tree? It was to the rescue of that dryad, tethered to the earth, that you rushed like knight-errants. You, the higher humanitarians, are not deceived by the seeming stillness of the green things, a stillness like the stillness of the cataract, a headlong and crashing silence. You know that a tree is but a creature tied to the ground by one leg. You will not let assassins with their Swedish daggers shed the green blood of such a being. But if so, why am I not in custody? Where are my jives? Produce! from some portion of your persons my mouldy straw and my grated window. The facts of which I have just convinced you, that my name is Chesterton, that I am a journalist, that I am living with the well-known and philanthropic Mr. Blank of Ilkley, cannot have anything to do with the question of whether I have been guilty of cruelty to vegetables. The tree is nonetheless damaged, even though it may reflect with a dark pride that it was wounded by a gentleman connected with the liberal press. Wounds in the bark do not more rapidly close up because they are inflicted by people who are stopping with Mr. Blank of Ilkley. That tree, the ruin of its former self, the wreck of what was once a giant of the forest, now splintered and laid low by the brute superiority of a Swedish knife, that tragedy, constable, cannot be wiped out even by stopping for several months more with some wealthy person." It is incredible that you have no legal claim to arrest even the most august and fashionable persons on this charge, for if so, why did you interfere with me at all? 
I made the later and larger part of this speech to the silent wood, for the two policemen had vanished almost as quickly as they came. It is very possible, of course, that they were fairies. In that case, the somewhat illogical character of their view of crime, law, and personal responsibility would find a bright and elfish explanation. Perhaps, if I had lingered in the glade till moonrise, I might have seen rings of tiny policemen dancing on the sward, or running about with glowworm belts, arresting grasshoppers for damaging blades of grass. But taking the bolder hypothesis that they really were policemen, I find myself in a certain difficulty. I was certainly accused of something which was either an offense or was not. I was let off because I proved I was a guest at a big house. The inference seems painfully clear. Either it is not a proof of infamy to throw a knife about in a lonely wood, or else it is a proof of innocence to know a rich man. Suppose a very poor person, poorer even than a journalist, a navvy or unskilled laborer, tramping in search of work, often changing his lodgings, often perhaps failing in his rent. Suppose he had read Stevenson's novels. Suppose he had been intoxicated with the green gaiety of the ancient wood. Suppose he had thrown knives at trees and could give no description of a dwelling place except that he had been fired out of the last. As I walked home through a cloudy and purple twilight, I wondered how he would have got on. Moral. We English are always boasting that we are very illogical. There is no great harm in that. There is no subtle spiritual evil in the fact that people always brag about their vices. It is when they begin to brag about their virtues that they become insufferable. But there is this to be said, that illogicality in your constitution or your legal methods may become very dangerous if there happens to be some great national vice or national temptation which many take advantage of the chaos. Similarly, a drunkard ought to have strict rules and hours. A temperate man may obey his instincts. Take some absurd anomaly in the British law. The fact, for instance, that a man ceasing to be an MP has to become steward of the children hundreds, an office which I believe was intended originally to keep down some wild robbers near Chiltern, wherever that is. Obviously, this kind of illogicality does not matter very much, for the simple reason that there is no great temptation to take advantage of it. Men retiring from Parliament do not have any furious impulse to hunt robbers in the hills. But if there were a real danger that wise, white-haired, venerable politicians taking leave of public life would desire to do this, if, for instance, there were any money in it, then, clearly, if we went on saying that the illogicality did not matter, when, as a matter of fact, Sir Michael Hicks Beach was hanging Chiltern shopkeepers every day and taking their property, we should be very silly. The illogicality would matter, for it would have become an excuse for indulgence. It is only the very good who can live riotous lives." Now this is exactly what is present in cases of police investigations such as the one narrated above. There enters into such things a great national sin, a far greater sin than drink, the habit of respecting a gentleman. Snobbishness has, like drink, a kind of grand poetry, 
and snobbishness has this particular and devilish quality of evil that it is rampant among very kindly people with open hearts and houses. But it is our great English vice to be watched more fiercely than smallpox. If a man wished to hear the worst and wickedest thing in England summed up in casual English words, he would not find it in any foul oaths or ribald quarrelling. He would find it in the fact that the best kind of working man, when he wishes to praise anyone, calls him a gentleman. It never occurs to him that he might as well call him a marquis or a privy councillor, that he is simply naming a rank or class, not a phrase for a good man. And this perennial temptation, of which Thackeray wrote, the temptation to a shameful admiration, must and, I think, does constantly come in and distort and poison our police methods. In this case, we must be logical and exact, for we have to keep watch upon ourselves. The power of wealth, and that power at its vilest, is increasing in the modern world. A very good and just people, without this temptation, might not need, perhaps, to make clear rules and systems to guard themselves against the power of our great financiers. But that is because a very just people would have shot them long ago from mere native good feeling. You have been listening to Selections from Tremendous Trifles by G. K. Chesterton. I'm Richard Figge, and this has been For Reading Out Loud. Let me know what stories and authors you would like to hear. Drop me a line, if you will, at rfigge, that's R-F as in Frank, I-G-G-E, at worcester.edu. That's it for tonight. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, please stay safe, all the best. Thank you.